0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Farmer's Jam Radio. Today we are going to be chatting about one of the most essential things in farming, and that is the soil. A couple of weeks ago on our newsletter, we highlighted an article from Civil Eats titled The Corn Belt is Losing Topsoil, Increasing Carbon Emissions, and Lowering Yields which is a pretty terrible combination of things if you think about it. One of the professors quoted in the article was Professor Bruno Basso from Michigan State University. Now I know that topsoil might not be everybody's favorite subject, but trust me, if you bring up topsoil to a farmer, their ears are gonna perk up. You might have also heard about the importance of topsoil as it relates to climate change. But the truth is that topsoil is really critically important for a whole number of things. There is a lot of evidence, as Professor Basso states, that the healthier the soil, the healthier the entire population. And while topsoil is a complex topic, at the end of this podcast episode, I hope that you'll understand this topic on a very basic level and totally understand why it's so important for farmers, why it's so important for our environment, and why it's so important for our health. So without further ado, here's our interview with Professor Basso. My name is James Carr, the host of Farmer's Jam Radio and the creator of Farmer's Jam. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll catch you on the other side. All right, everybody, welcome back. I am now joined by Professor Bruno Basso from Michigan State. He is a soil scientist as well as the co-founder of Chibo, a technology company that analyzes land, Typically, farmland uh, to measure yields, to measure potential for regenerative success and carbon absorption. Uh, Really, really interesting stuff. He was recently featured in an article by Civil Eats about topsoil in the Corn Belt. Uh, And uh, we'll get into why he's calling the trend of losing topsoil a vicious cycle. But for now, welcome Professor Basso to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much uh, for having me, James.
0: So, uh, Professor Basso, can you just tell us a little bit about your role at Michigan State, as well as what CHIBO uh, helps farmers accomplish?
1: Surely. Um, So, as you mentioned, I am a professor at Michigan State University in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. My role is really much more focused on research, and the research that I do deals with Integration of digital technologies um to help um farmers manage their lands in into a more sustainable way and sustainable really intended um more profitable while at the same time trying to reduce environmental impact and inefficiency in their operation so I have the pleasure to lead that pretty large land i have about Twenty members or so in the what we call digital agronomy lab at Michigan State, and so that uh, lab has really been involved in several research projects, which they all have one good thing in common, which is really making um, pretty complex uh, integration of science and technology a little bit more easy to understand and be able to be used by farmers. And so with that, uh, that is, a, since you asked, uh, pretty direct connection to Chibo and, um, this, um, digital platform that I have co-founded, um, with investors in, in the Boston area, um, pioneer, uh, Flexi pioneering. Um, anyway, the, the research that, um, it's done in Michigan state is often converted and translated into this digital platform, um, at Chibo with, um, their own really top-notch scientists and leadership that um, trying to help farmers. And, and if you like, we can go deeper into specific roles of uh, their mandate um, on the market.
0: Well, um, I think we can. I think we probably will uh, talk more about that uh, as we as we talk about some of the solutions. For to begin with, I wanted to. Um, just kind of establish you know uh, some of the main issues that were that are going on right now particularly in the midwest but you know also across the united states and that is a, a loss of of topsoil so you know when we talk in um, agriculture and landscape topsoil uh, you know everybody's ears perk up <laughs> it's all kinds of um, questions you know or uh, farmers love to talk about their topsoil show off their topsoil uh, compare it all this kind of stuff but why is uh, you know for the average listener for someone who's not in agriculture all the time why is topsoil so important
1: okay that is a relevant question um, like, like you mentioned but we'll try to make things so simple and the reason soils in general and pop even more than you know subsoil is critical because it holds um, nutrients and um, water for for roots, and the topsoil is more important than subsoils just because the amount of soil organic matter, uh, which is basically the biology of a, of a soil, the the creatures and the bacteria and all the microorganisms that are able to turn over the residues and the roots, the carbon, into nutrients and available to the plants are mostly predominant in the top part of the soil. And so, as you've seen it, I mean, and and it's pretty much across the board, that um, it takes very long time to form soil, to form, you know, new soil by definition, you know, but it takes very Few seconds or minutes to lose a um, topsoil as a result of the pool management and once you lose the topsoil with all the nutrients and all the capacity to store water you are left with something that is a little bit more secondary in the role a little bit more thorough, um soil with less organic matter and um which obviously would affect the possibility of obtaining greater yields but more importantly to be able to be resilient and resilient meaning that when you are short on water the roots can still be able to you know survive with the water that is stored in the soil but if you don't have that topsoil it's much smaller if um, you don't have a greater topsoil with greater organic matter and the capacity to again store nutrients and available water for roots.
0: Exactly, and that's a, that was an excellent, um, I think, explanation um, to really dig into why topsoil is is so critical. And 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 obviously, for all of those reasons, it's. Um, even more critical in agriculture where you're placing, you know, the seeds in the topsoil that are supposed to be surrounded by lots of nutrients and uh, moisture. So specifically, um, you're quoted in the uh, article as describing how one third of the Midwest is losing about 50 percent of its topsoil, which causes a vicious cycle of lower yields uh, and higher emissions. So can you talk about that cycle a little bit and how, you know, once you start losing topsoil, how it can just be, you know, you're sort of digging and digging yourself into a deeper hole.
1: That is a, a good description and so I as you mentioned I use the word of a vicious cycle just because again when you start losing the best part of your of your soil, um you your yields will be lower. And the fact that the the yields are lower, you have less carbon that is returned to the soil because your residues from the crop, you know, your stubbles returning as organic matter are are lower. And if you lose nutrients, again, as a result of soil erosion, these losses, uh, then you are much more dependent on external input. So fertilizer. And so this is where the paradox comes. You, the more dependent you are on external input, in a soil that does not hold water, you almost make double harm because mm-hmm. you keep adding fertilizer to in areas that it may not necessarily suffering from a reduction of fertilizer because you're adding it, as much as not having enough water for the plants to be able to use it. So just a, a clarification on some of the statement, you know, a third of the Midwest this is very much well quantified and validated. A third of the US Midwest currently has low yielding uh, areas. So instead of having of you know in corn I'm talking about corn an average of 170 bushel, 180 bushel, they are much lower than that. But they are managed as they were to be a much greater source of you know yields, and so when you have a small crop and you apply a, a large amount of fertilizer, the plant does not use everything that you've been providing, thinking that that's the amount that the plant is going to need and because fertilizer again is, may not be the limiting sources, the fact you don't have water, you have a very inefficient use and so the, the study quantified that fifty percent of the fertilizer that is added to low productivity areas is lost. So I always make this example. Imagine you buy you know a hundred pound bag. You walk out in the parking lot and you dump the first fifty on the parking lot. Then you go to the field. You say why Why would I do that? So the whole basically hopefully you know alternative um, management that we're trying to push is that these low productivity areas are to be dealt with lower potentials, and because of lower potential, lower fertilizer should be placed on these areas, such that you don't have such an inefficient use of fertilizer which end up in the Mississippi River, and we know the consequences at all the way to the end uh, of the Gulf of Mexico. So we quantify that the reduction of the fertilizer on the low productivity areas could very well mitigate the losses of fertilizer that they have found not completely because there is always losses from additional organic amendments, manure, and other sources of of fertilizer. But close to one teragrams, which is a big amount, um, could be mitigated, again, reduced if low productivity areas were to be managed with what we call digital agriculture because we know where they are and we know that they can... uh, basically be managed with a lower fertilization rate.
0: That's right. And I appreciate you clarifying because I did make a mistake when I was talking earlier um, in that it's not that the Midwest is losing 50% of topsoil. It's that the fertilizer is just straight running off and it's not even being absorbed by the plants. And that's because of the topsoil that has been eroded. Correct. Thank you so much for for clarifying that. So. And uh oh, yeah.
1: I just want to add one thing in relation to erosion. There is a pretty, uh, I guess, a rule of thumb in quantification. We lose about two pounds of soil for every bushel of corn produced. So the wow. listener can do a little bit of the math.
0: <laughs> That's a big number, though, when you start adding it up. Exactly. Uh, yeah. OK. Wow. So um, now this is, I think, more of where your research comes in and, and where your work with Chibo comes in, which is how how farms can actually be managed so that, as you mentioned, you're not treating a low yield area like a high yield area and essentially wasting resources and causing damage down the Mississippi. And I know you alluded to it, but I do like to bring up that, you know, it is really, really harming the Mississippi and the Gulf uh River I mean there are dead zones full of fertilizer where plants and 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 seafood cannot live, so it's really causing it has a huge trickle effect this you know fertilizer that's just running off the ground um, but you talk about managing farms at at a landscape scale, and to me it sounds you know, a lot like what we see, what what we work with here at Farmer's Jam, which is smaller scale, more polyculture farms, where you're, you know, you're doing different varieties, different species that can not only improve the soil, but uh, cause you to use less inputs. I'm wondering if if that if that is true for you, but if you can generally explain, you know, what it means to sort of manage farms at a landscape scale.
1: Yes, very good. Uh, well, one very important separation I want to make here is that it sounds like you know we're condemning farmers the way you know they manage their land and farmers by nature since I work closely with them are really good stewards of the environment and and at least they suddenly want to be even more the reason there is an approach that naturally because their stake is always at risk you know some Enterprise like agriculture that depends so much on on climate on mother nature they by nature they have to hope hope that they manage for the best possible season that the best year is coming. One other things that I've observed that farmers unfortunately have a short memory which means in terms of the risk. So they say, oh, last year was a dry year, it's gonna be a dry year again, and they will basically trying to do anything possible to avoid. And my research has really shown, mine as well as many other colleagues, and, and again, the role of CBO in this is critical because it transfers and scales across pretty much the entire you know US um, agriculture. Has really been to look at uh, the crops not just on a single year, but on more on a historical perspective, and so that takes care more of the, the time scale. But when you say managing and the landscape, that's really how agriculture should be envisioned, because having fields in that have low, high productivity areas and low productivity areas, and then the next field has the same situation of high productivity areas, areas where they basically fluctuate from one year to the next. The so low productivity areas could very well be used for alternative land use, which means in, encourage conversion to more you know perennial crops or pollinators and so, what even though we come with this pretty much you know aggressive sort of the quantification which is what the science is about these are numbers that we quantified but ultimately is also to help them be more profitable because james is not just about farmers losing fertilizer and topsoil. i mean this is the whole enterprise is a risk as you know The agricultural sector, it's trillions of uh, dollars involved. But farmers always face a very thin margin with a very high risk because Mm -hmm. the cost of the inputs are so large. And so my question has always been, why can't you understand, in general, as a manager of an enterprise, realize that you could manage by reducing the expenses? And unfortunately, that doesn't come natural. But it is much, much more now that farmers are more convinced that, you know, the low productivity areas could be managed with digital agriculture or could have perennial, you know, crops or pollinators. And so recently I have a research project from the the NRCS, which encouraged farmers to allocate these low productivity areas to conservation, and there is also an initiative uh, at the government level. It's called 3030, or actually, it just changed the name. It's called Beautiful America. And that by 2030, 30 percent of the land in the US has to be allocated to conservation of resources. And so agriculture is run in the middle of this. Farmers face this greater risk. And so, what are the that really help them make the decision? And that's when SIBO... Comes in. Sibo comes in by creating this digital platform that quantifies the regenerative potential. Because there are solutions to this. You had a very good example, and I was pleased to hear that most uh, the farmers really deal with diverse ecosystems and you know different crops. This is ideally what even mainstream agriculture should look like. You know, mm-hmm. more diverse rotations more, you know, integrated agriculture, biodiversity, perennials, possibly bringing livestock back, you know, on the farm to release, which is by definition what is goes under this big umbrella of regenerative. And so if you think that in a nutshell is managing a larger area, the farm enterprise and the landscape by accounting, you know, hilltops and depression and how they repeated over space, you managing the landscape rather than a small pixel, you, you managing, if you lose water from one area and goes to another, can you take a strategic approach by, you know, using crops that will need or will do better or will use more efficiently the water where it's available and plant crops where they have greater rooting depth or, you know, better coverage of the topsoil so you don't lose as much as, you know, the, the topsoil for soil erosion. So all these strategies are, I realize, are difficult for farmers to put all these puzzles, you know, the pieces of this puzzle together. But it's certainly coming together. And thanks to, again, both technologies, the possibility of having geospatial, you know, possibility of, you, may, you must have heard, the, you know, the latest uh, um, completely autonomous tractor that can drive. Yes. So all these, all these pieces are coming together. And eventually, I'm optimistic that agriculture will continue to be much more a solution than a problem, um, both to the climate crisis or to the possibility of producing food. Production of food has actually increased over the last, you know, 10-15 years, thanks to all this improvement in management, genetic, um, you know, improvements, and, and farmers becoming even more sensitive to. Uh, the environment and the community uh, request the transparency that is kind of demanded on their side. So sustainability is becoming certainly a, a, a new term that they start suddenly being exposed much more and that they're trying to make also part of their own, uh, you know, portfolio.
0: Yes. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of pressure on farmers to balance so many different things at once while, you know, needing to to turn a profit in a, in a high risk sector. And um, I think a lot of farmers sort of see, you know, the environmentalism and the, the climate change, at least initially was, oh, now you're asking me to do even more. And, you know, how am I supposed to do this and that and that? Um, but I think, as you've mentioned, over time there have been a number of success stories. Um, do you think that that is creating a, tr- a trickle-down effect? Or I guess what I'm asking is, how do we how do we get to the vision that you just described? You know, what kind of maybe is it support from USDA? I mean, how 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 do you get more farmers on board?
1: That is a very good question, and it's a question that is common across you know the sector. And I would say. Independently on what you would favour in terms of seeing the future in agriculture, is really going to be shaped by two types of um, in- incentives, in a way. Whether they are coming from public through you saying, okay, that you put pressure, but I do what you know what you're telling me to do. I'm reducing my environmental footprint. I need to be rewarded, and that was certainly happen, it's happening, it will happen more. There will be new way of incentivizing adoption of conservation. The the other piece is the more private and market-based solutions. So there is a new crop that people don't quite see yet that way, but that crop is called carbon. So potentially the low areas then now are a drawdown. I mean, they basically put the bank account down because they lose the cost of the fertilizer and they don't get the return on the investment. They, it could be, it could turn into a positive flow of cash if they sell, you know, the carbon that accumulates through a perennial system. It does require fertilizer addition, so it has no greenhouse gas emissions. And it it's carbon over time, And and so the CO2, the process of photosynthesis, pulling CO2 from the atmosphere, storing the carbon through a perennial system that has no tillage, could be basically sold as, you know, a potential solution on the market. And so we know more about, and it's still in the infancy, it's still very chaotic, a potential in the future market, um, you know, sold carbon credits and market-based solution, it's a second. But there is a third and a third is much more from the consumer packaged goods, you know, basically the food systems, the food companies that demand more sustainability, they say, oh, I'm going to choose you over someone else that continues to do deep tillage and
0: mm-hmm. erosion
1: comes and takes all, you know, these soils and from water and uh, again, wind erosion, you lose all that. You just... Indirectly, you will eventually be forced to be, become part of a solution through better contracts, you know, longer-term solutions where you say, oh, I just signed a contract with new CPGs. They'll be, they will be buying, you know, my food because I produce them in the most sustainable way. And so there are opportunities because when, when there is a demand, the supply adjusts it somehow because it, it, it that's basically how it works and whether it's local or comes, so the farmers will understand that they want to be competitive, they will need that and the good thing is that it's, it creates co-benefits, which means if I start introducing conservation approaches you know, no tiller the cover crops, and I have a contract, all the benefits because of the new management that I do, all of a sudden, you're much more independent from external inputs. Your fertilizer right. amount will be reduced. That doesn't happen immediately. It takes time to convert a, no t- a conventional tillage into a productive, you know, independent, regenerative soil. And so, in the meantime, any type of incentives, whether it's a market or if, uh, you know, um national government based uh, incentives, policies, insurance or again um, uh, better contracts will make that happen. Now how that is gonna shape, I think it could be a potential of a combination of the all three. Uh, but the carbon credits it's certainly something that is happening. There are several companies stuffing to selling really rigid quantified, you know, uh carbon uh, credits, despite the very large uncertainties, both in measurements and modeling, but we're all getting better at quantifying the real measurements through target sampling and improving geo- by geochemical models and so the scalability of the whole regenerative agriculture is really coming together in the way that um, science has kind of predicted over the last few years, and and again obviously, you know, being co-founder, I think SIBO plays a critical role here um, in making um, the technology available to farmers to to evaluate the value of the land and the regenerative potential to be able to say, if I do something else, how much carbon will I store? You can't depend on experiments, and so you run a simulation system, highly validated simulation system that quantifies your return before you even change. Uh, their particular practice.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, and that could that would be, uh, yeah, obviously a, <laughs> a critical part in, in in any of the transition before you make the investment. I'm curious. Just one quick question. One last question about you know you mentioned carbon as a, a crop. And is that? Do you see that as sort of when you when you begin? Um, let's say you know you, we're, we're focused on a, a low yield part of a farm. We turn it into a bunch of perennials. Um, you know, it's now a patch of perennials, you put in that work for, you know, three seasons, three, four years, what have you, and it's now starting to accumulate carbon. Is that something to where you're putting, you know, some, some significant upfront investment, but then is continuing to grow carbon time and time, over time, over time, that you can continue to sell as credits? Is that how that would work?
1: That is correctly how it works you have to get us, you know, you establish the crop, roots continue to, because if you think on an annual basis, especially let's say across the most uh, typical, you know, corn belt, over the winter, there is no perennial that will resist to the cold. So when -hmm. the weather comes, they basically, you have a new reborn, you know, plant, switchgrass or native prairies and, you know, they pull the CO2, they grow big during the summer. But the roots are perennial. I mean, the roots stay in there. They don't, you know, get removed and they, they get deeper and deeper. And so over every single year, you could potentially accumulate, you know, between 300 kilograms to close to a ton uh, on each single acre without putting any inputs at all. And so when you start doing that, currently the carbon credit payment is still very low mm. in order to avoid – what we call greenwashing, because carbon today they, it can be purchased using the California Cap and Trade program at twenty dollars a ton, if there is a rigid, you know, quantification of following the protocol. And so a oil company can offset their emission by buying this carbon as long as permanence and farmers don't deal. But even then, they, they take a buffer; they put it aside in case something else will happen to be returned. But the cost is so low, in the range of 15 to 20 dollars, that it's still easy for companies to avoid a major overhaul in their own way of producing things. If the carbon credits would cost uh, would pay farmer, let's say, 100 dollars a ton, then there would be a significant number of farmers moving into conservation practices. Mm. And so the one ton could become much larger because of, you know, greater areas and more uh, agriculture being fully green. I think farmers need to be, to be paid by the number of days their field is green, and the field should always be green, and can be green from some perennials that they are green even during the winter. And so soil should always be covered should not be, you know, left, you know, vulnerable to, to erosion. But if the price of the payment is higher, then it does two things. It, it rewards farmers by bringing this compensation and compensate the initial, you know, uh, cost. But also that some of these companies will say, well, we start, we better start doing something internally. In the meantime, we'll buy the carbon that on the long term we also solve, you know, our own problem. And so we won't be... Uh, kind of accused to allow for what is called greenwashing because, you know, you basically continue to pollute and whatever you store, you just compensate because of the pollution that happens in another sector. So I don't know if that's, you know, that was clear, but uh, there's lots of, um, you know, future opportunities beyond selling the grains or, you know, selling the crops because agriculture... First of all, I mean it's so important that you know it's is what what I say eating is an agricultural act, and we need to continue to feed you know growing population. We need to continue to feed with healthy food, and so there is a pretty very nice kind of you know almost sounds like a book and so on. But healthy environment through regenerative will lead to healthy food system, healthy food system, healthy health of the people, helping farmers economically and healthy community. So this is not a dream, this is happening. It's just how we prime the system in order to happen, you know, to make it happen that gets adopted.
0: All right, well, uh, I'm happy to leave it there. I, 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 I'd love your um, optimism. And of course, I totally agree uh you know this is these are exactly the kind of conversations we want to have disconnecting uh, agriculture to many of our critical issues we're facing today whether that's climate change and healthcare and i you know i'm right there with you that i think agriculture can and should be playing a leading role um, in all of these discussions so thank you so much for sharing uh your insight with us and discussing topsoil and uh giving us a you know the lay of the land no pun intended um and uh, we appreciate uh, your work in, in helping farmers
1: that is fantastic thanks again for uh You know the call, and I was happy to be helpful uh, in such an important, uh, you know, uh, sector like agriculture. And congratulations on 40.
0: All right, great. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you.
0: right everybody y'all learned something new today appreciate y'all sticking with us to the end did want to thank professor basso for joining us and uh really thoroughly but um simply explaining such a complex topic uh i really hope that y'all were able to understand the importance of topsoil uh it is a nerdy conversation maybe not the best thing to bring up at a dinner party but super super important Also wanted to apologize to all of marine life, which I classified as seafood during uh, this interview. I was talking about fertilizer runoff in the Gulf and yeah, just genuinely referred to all marine animals as seafood. So that probably reflects a bit of my consumer bias, but uh, yeah, just wanted to uh, apologize to marine life out there, but again highlight how destructive fertilizer runoff is to the Mississippi. I mean, I'm telling you, there are dead zones the size of Connecticut in the Gulf because there are so much fertilizer where nothing can actually live. Okay, so enough about that. Thank you again for tuning in and for all your support with Farmers Jam. Farmers Jam Radio was created by Longleaf Media. It is hosted and produced by myself and Cam Christian with music by Nomad. If you want to stay connected with the world of Farmers Jam, head over to www.dfarmersjam.com. We send out a weekly newsletter with ag news from around the world. We do focus a little bit on Georgia and Atlanta because that is our home and that is where we love. But you're going to get a sense for the world of agriculture. Plus, you'll know when we're releasing new jams, when we've got events coming up, all kinds of good stuff. That's it for us today, but we'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Farmers Jam Radio.